0: Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Ron Francell, and he just published a book March 1st, 2022. Title of the book is Shadow Man, an Elusive Psycho Killer and the Birth of FBI Profiling. Really an excellent read, fascinating book. He's a superb writer, and this is not his first book. He's written and is the author of 18 books, including the Edgar-nominated Morgue, A Life in Death, in the international bestseller, The Darkest Night, a true crime memoir, hailed by Ann Rule and Vincent Bugliosi as a direct descendant of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood and listed by the New York Times as one of America's most powerful true crime books. His atmospheric and muscular writing has established him as one of the most provocative voices in narrative nonfiction. Ron grew up in Wyoming. He grew up in several newsrooms before hitting the road on one of American journalism's best beats covering the evolution of the American West as a senior writer for the Denver Post. Shortly after 9-11, he was dispatched by the Post to cover the Middle East during the first few months of the Afghan war. In 2004, he covered the devastation of Hurricane Rita from inside the storm. He and his wife now live safely in northern New Mexico. His book reviews and essays have been widely published in many of America's biggest and best newspapers, such as the Washington Post, Post Post, Chicago Sun-Times, San Francisco Chronicle, Denver Post, San Jose Mercury News, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and others. He's been a guest on CNN, Fox News, NPR, The Today Show, ABC News, and other major broadcast outlets all over America. And he appears regularly on crime documentaries at Investigation Discovery, History Channel, Reels, and A&E. And some of the titles, I'm not going to go through all of his 18 books, but some are Alice and Gerald, A Homicidal Love Story, Crime Buffs Guide to Outlaw Los Angeles. And I mentioned earlier, Morgue, A a Life and Death. Also, The Darkest Night, Two Sisters, A Brutal Murder, and The Loss of Innocence in a Small Town. And also, Angel Fire. And his website is his full name, ronfrancel.com. So, www.ronfrancel.com. But again, we're going to talk about this book he just published, Shadow Man, An Elusive Psycho Killer and the birth of FBI profiling. So, Ron Francel, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview.
1: Welcome to me, to you. I'm just glad to be here. This is wonderful. Uh, All those credits that you read there, I, I hardly recognize. It's just fun to be here today. Awesome.
0: Well, you have a long writing career. You've written different books, reviews, essays. Can you maybe cover some of the earlier work you've done and what led you up to this book, Shadow Man?
1: I was a reporter for 30 years uh in many ways i still am uh i just have sort of changed platforms a little bit i'm no longer writing for newspapers but uh writing book length journalism in a sense and and there's a lot of difference there but uh it it kind of grows from that journalism experience and like you pointed out Um, The the High Point probably is senior writer at the Denver Post, where I really got some experience um, uh, writing these narrative nonfiction pieces where you're telling a totally true story, but you're doing it in a kind of story form. And you probably recognized that in Shadow Man, where... Uh I, I, I'm being a reporter. I'm telling all these facts, but I'm putting them in, in a form that we kind of recognize as uh, a, a being like a novel. It's like reading a mystery or a literary novel. Because news stories start with the most important thing and then they trail off. Well, that would be a very short book. Um, this is constructed in a different way. This is constructed as a story, mm-hmm. so that I think is its appeal, and that really kind of comes from early on writing a couple of novels in my career, uh, but then combining those tools from the novelist's toolbox in my journalism. I'm not. I'm not making stuff up. I'm just doing my reporting in a little bit different style that brings back the feeling that we're hearing a story.
0: Right. And this story does take place kind of closer to your original beat in in Colorado, right?
1: Yes. Um, And I grew up in Wyoming. Uh, I, I know the Upper Rockies. I know the people in the Upper Rockies, Wyoming, Montana, the Dakotas, uh, I, it, it, and that was part of its appeal to me, was that it was um, about places and people that I knew, but a big part of its appeal was simply in 50 years, nobody had ever written a book about this, not not the crimes, uh, which are ghastly, but not the, uh, the origin story of the FBI's profiling. So uh, I was properly shocked by that. And I think at that point, I decided I was going to write that book.
0: And this was, I mean, hopefully young kids are not listening to the show because it is ghastly, just like you said. I mean, some of these crimes are incredible. Considering it's a small town, kind of mid, uh, you know, mid or upper Rockies area, can you kind of talk about some of the background of what really took place there in that kind of Manhattan area and uh, some of the deaths? Um,
1: sure, I, um, we have over a period of time from 1967 uh, through 1974, uh, a, a number of, of crimes, uh, deaths that happened. Not all are attributed to murder. Uh, the first two are attributed to uh, uh, some horseplay gone bad between a couple of preteen boys. Uh, another one, just a stray shot from a target practice or, or you know, a rabbit hunter. Uh, so nobody, nobody calculated those as murders. Uh, it's in 1973 that a little girl goes missing from a campground in Gallatin County, Montana. Um, you know, it's a remote uh campground uh, near Manhattan, Montana. Uh, and uh, when she goes missing, it's very quickly decided that this wasn't just a little girl wandered off. There was something more nefarious afoot. So the FBI was called in uh, to to Take over the investigation as federal law demands. So, uh, the the FBI is there, but honestly, uh, what has happened here is a little girl is in a tent in this campground with three brothers and sis- uh, and a sister. Uh, somebody cuts a neat half moon shape in in the tent and pulls this little girl out in the middle of the night without disturbing her siblings without her raising uh, a ruckus without without any any sense whatsoever that she's missing uh, that next morning when they discover she's gone and they discover this hole in the tent the only thing anybody sees is a, a faint, trail off through the dewy grass, uh, and even then that disappears as morning warms up. So when the FBI arrives on the scene, uh, they have no real evidence. They have no witnesses. Um, They have yet to hear any good leads or ideas. So obviously they have no suspects. That's not unusual for the beginning of a, you know, the first 24 hours of a crime. Uh, but this goes on for days, for weeks, for months, uh, as the FBI is, is uh, vigorously investigating this case. But, but seven months later, they have no better idea about who this might be
0: than they did on day one. Right. So the girl never shows up. Susie Yeager, right? G-A-A-E-G-R. Correct. So she and they do everything. They search convicted sex criminals, hoaxers. They get scammed. There's no good suspects. So they're flummoxed. They can't figure out what happened. They never found her body, too, right? At Correct. Least at that point. Yeah. But then there was a call too, right? at a certain point. Somebody offered a ransom for her
1: yes there there's a uh there, there was an, a ransom offered there were a lot of calls
0: you know a lot of
1: uh in the early 1970s they had trolls too <laughs> you know they weren't right. online but they were the kinds of people the, these hoaxers some of them wanted to get a uh, you know, a cut of the the ransom some were well-meaning but uh, troubled clairvoyance who believed they had seen in their visions, certain clues. Uh, there were some people that just wanted to toy with a grieving family. So it was not uncommon for the phone to ring at Susie's parents' house in Michigan, and it be somebody that was just toying with them. But one, one day, um, a phone rings and and one of the brothers picks it up. And there's something about this one that seems uh, different. And so they it's not recorded. It's he just recounts that this this man um, had had some information. They expected him to call back uh and eventually he does but it is those those phone calls ultimately play a role in the creation of the profile some months later uh but uh it's it's eerie and and very early they uh they it's decided by the profiling by the uh parents uh by the the, the bad guy himself uh, giving information that this is the guy. This is, this is the guy who took Susie. And uh, that's where this starts to get more interesting.
0: Right. I mean, so that's it. They, there's something they know or this caller knew specific to the girl and that's really what it is. So yeah. For some reason, it had a compulsion to call the family.
1: Right? Well, yeah, he was a sadist, and and that was something that was obvious even before they knew who it was. It was clear he he had a, a sadistic streak a mile wide. He he in those phone calls that we're talking about, he taunts the mother. He he says things that are. Uh, designed to, to put a knife in her heart and twist it. Uh, she's sickened by all this. She's, she's grieving. She, she wants to fall down and cry, but she doesn't. She stands in there with him, uh, asking questions and challenging him without, without being evil or, or mad. She, she's doing it. Uh, as a, as you might imagine, a mother who's seeking her lost child. Uh, and ultimately, uh, the profilers in this particular case see uh, that he has a difficulty with that. And we might be getting ahead of ourselves there, but it, it's those phone calls are important. And in the end, I believe the mother is probably the hero of this story. Not the profilers, not the FBI agents, but the mother who who sort of brings this out.
0: Right. And so the mother's there, and then the agent is Dunbar, right, who worked the Susie Yeager case in 73, but then in 74, another person disappears, right? Sandy Smolligan, Smulligan? Sandy
1: Smolligan. Uh, she's a 19-year-old waitress in Manhattan, which is... Uh, ten to fifteen miles away from that campground, uh, she disappears one night in in February, and th- at this point, there's no there's no thought. I don't I don't believe it's on their radar at all that those two cases might be related. Uh, they're 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 sort of being investigated on two separate tracks. There's no sense that. That that they have uh, somebody committing these crimes. It's is for all intents and purposes two different crimes. Right. In their Huge street, age
0: difference, right? Seven year old
1: and an age girl. difference. Uh, right. Seven year old girl and a nineteen year old young woman. Uh, so uh, and this is pre. Serial killer, the the, the term serial killer hasn't even been coined yet. Uh, And the whole idea of the serial part of serial killer was still forming. You know, in 19, it's kind of hard to believe that in 1974, we still weren't necessarily putting uh, crimes together in the, uh, linking them by the psychological, uh, similarities uh, that that's developing, but there were no psychological similarities, no no victimology similarities, no weapon, nothing. So the the investigation for Sandy Smolligan, uh to find her it it expands out from Little Manhattan uh, to a remote. In in ever widening circles, and and one day, ten days after she's she disappears, there a couple of deputies are at a, uh, a remote abandoned ranch in the middle of nowhere. They find her car hidden in this dilapidated barn out there. So the the search uh, switches to this this abandoned ranch. And as they look closer over the grounds here, they eventually find uh, just a a, a large amount of crushed, pulverized, charred bones. Uh, So they collect what they can. They send it off to the Smithsonian, which gets back to them fairly quickly and says, indeed, these were the bones of a young woman, late teens, early 20s. And given the proximity of Ricard, they assume that this is what's left of Sandy Smalligan. But, says the Smithsonian, among these shards of bone are bones of a much younger female under 10 years old. That's when the investigators put the two together. They believe that they are now holding some of the remains of both Sandy Smolligan the waitress and Susie Yeager who had gone missing you know eight months before the fact remained though that they still had no witnesses uh, they right. they had no tips they had no uh, no leads uh, they had no
0: suspects Right. And they had the same FBI agent though, Dunbar, who is re- very important to the story, right? Because as this is happening all the way across the country, Quantico and the FBI Training Academy has just been opened, right? Or had opened very recently. With yeah, FBI fairly, FBI. fairly recently before
1: that. Um, Dunbar had to go back to Quantico for some some regular training. It just scheduled training Uh, and so while he's there he attends a workshop and this workshop is is run by two fbi agents one an expert in psychology the other a very respected expert in crime scene analysis Uh, they have gotten together and they have this theory that That by looking at crime scene evidence, uh, you could probably tell a lot about the behavior and the psychology of the perpetrator. Uh, They they were developing that idea. It wasn't a popular idea. Um, Boots on the ground, law enforcement, pushed back against the, the very idea because they believed that that the way you solve crimes is you talk to a lot of people, you, you knock on a lot of doors. Here were these guys saying, hey, we, we can read somebody's mind, in a sense. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover himself thought it was hokum. Uh, He, he didn't like the idea. He, 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 he was happy to have these guys teach separately psychology and crime scene analysis, but he didn't want them doing it together. But then J. Edgar Hoover dies, and there's a little more progressive leadership in the FBI that lets their that lets them have a little bit longer leash. And it's about that time that Dunbar hears their workshop. And here he is frustrated by these entangled crimes against Sandy Smalligan and Susie Yeager. And he, he's flat-footed. And so he literally follows these two agents, Pat Mullaney and Howard Teaton, from the stage down to their offices in the basement of, of the training academy. And he says, he tells them that what he's got and expresses his frustration. They they think there there might be something it it seemed like uh, a kind of ordinary case uh of murder if if i can be so crass as to use that word but uh they thought it might be a low risk way to test their theory so they studied the case file and they issued their very first profile uh, in this case it told a lot about what they thought this particular perpetrator thinks and how he behaves.
0: And so they had a very detailed at that time, like what, 74, of who they thought who this person was. And it was interesting because you mentioned an earlier case that I had never heard of, which was fascinating, about uh, George, the Mad Bomber of New York. That was amazing. That was uh, Dr. Brussel. right. And, yeah, that was so. That guy was able. Doctor Brussel was able to describe the mad bomber to a T. Like he had specifics down that were incredible. So yes. the capacity. Was really Sorry.
1: Absolutely, and I think it it led to some of the suspicion about uh, profiling because they they were such wild uh, outlines that he believed about the perpetrator of the bombings in New York in the 40s and 50s Uh, but they were they were wild and even today knowing what we know about profiling we can read the book about that and and still be startled by some of the things he was coming up with and I think that led to a certain amount of suspicion about the the art and the science of profiling even though they didn't call it that at the time, really. Uh, that was a, a term that Teton and Mulaney kind of pulled out of their uh, back pocket. Uh, <laughs> they didn't know what to call it. So, you know, look around and say, well,
0: how about uh criminal profile? Right. I mean, it is fascinating. They had a lot of elements that were surprisingly similar to some of the stuff that come up. I mean, and it's interesting too because a lot of people know the name Robert Ressler, so he worked under Mullaney and Teton, right? So people I've, yeah. I've come across stuff with Wrestler, yeah, that was fascinating. Um, so what happened next? What happened next after this profile? Well, they the Teton and Mullaney
1: issue the profile, they give it to uh Dunbar, of course. Uh, it's about between fifteen and twenty elements. Ultimately, it starts at about fifteen, and um, they're, uh, they they approach this purely on their experience and with logic. I think there's a little bit of it that was guesswork, uh, educated guesses. You, but you got to remember that the Teton and Mulaney had no rule book. There was no system, there was no roadmap. Uh, They were separately experts in psychology and crime scenes, but they had no model on how those things might work together. Uh, Some things were based on what they knew and some was just low-hanging fruit. Um, A good example is, you know, today anybody who watches true crime TV, assumes that the typical serial killer tends to be a white male in his 20s. But that's because we have 50 years of data. We have, you know, today's profilers have have a database of thousands of intensive expert interviews with killers. Teton and Mulaney had visited with a few and they had no database. In this particular case, when they said your, your likeliest uh, perpetrator, your unknown subject or unsub uh, is likely a white male in his 20s, it's because uh, these crimes required an astounding degree of stealth and strength that suggested he had military experience which was largely male during those Vietnam years. Uh, his knowledge of the surroundings and the, the uh, abilities of local law enforcement suggested he was local. And that being the case in this rural Montana County, it's 99% white. So you you can see how they're deducing uh, along the way. In the end, they're correct. And in fact, uh, of what is ultimately about 20 uh, elements in the profile, they're right on 19 of them. And on the 20th, they're not wrong. We just don't know because, well, events made it impossible for us to know that particular answer. So uh, they were astoundingly correct for their first time.
0: Right, so they knew he was an emotional crime and they thought that the person would contact the family of Susie Yeager again, they predicted that. So what did, they did something to elicit the perpetrator to call, right? Well, and there
1: are several calls in there, and um, they do say that. They say that, that this, this um, mentality has probably uh, internalized this crime. He, he, in fact, has a kind of perverse familial relationship with the crime that, in fact, he, he feels a part of the family, in a sense, uh, and that then he would probably celebrate uh, a, a key moment the way you and I celebrate birthdays or anniversaries or something. So they, they warned Dunbar that, that on any of the particular anniversaries that were important to the crime, he would probably try to reach out. So they, they put a, a recorder on the family phone in Michigan. And sure enough, uh, a year to the minute after Susie had disappeared, the phone rings in in her parents' house. And uh, on a, just an appalling... A fascinating conversation happens during which the mother, as I said earlier, uh, sort of stands in there with him uh, long enough for uh, the FBI to get a little bit better idea of the kind of person they were dealing with. And it helped improve the profile, too.
0: Right. And he he had a fairly long conversation with the mother, right? Just kind of badgering her, saying she was still, the daughter was still alive. Um- you know, yeah, he was so.
1: brainwashing her and she was gonna be re-educated to, you know, liking him more than her family and trusting him more than her family and so on. He was, like I said, he was he was thrusting a, a dagger into her heart and twisting it, and that was his intention. He wanted to crumple her, but she didn't.
0: Yeah, just a crazy psychological situation there. So, once that phone call happened, what happened next?
1: Well, as I say, the the profilers had some new information, and and so they were uh, getting smarter and smarter about this. Dunbar, uh, who was from that particular uh, part of Montana, he had. Worked as an agent in the big cities, but if, when his parents got ill, he he asked to be transferred back to Montana. Uh, so he knows this place. Among the suspects uh, in the case is is a, a well, uh, a very articulate, uh, fairly bright. Ex, I won't say ex marine, a marine who was no longer serving, uh, who had had no record whatsoever. The profilers were saying, "You really need to look at this guy. He fits the profile, so to speak." Dunbar wasn't wasn't aboard with that, um, but he he did his due diligence. He he talked to the guy, and the guy just had no. He didn't sound like a killer. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't put off any vibe of being a killer. And Dunbar dismisses him fairly quickly. Um, as they go, the profilers are still insistent that, that Dunbar should look at this guy. So he pops back up on the radar. They give him a lie detector test, which he passes with flying colors. They do it again a little bit later, and he passes uh a third time sort of at the insistence of the profilers they give him a truth serum test and he passes that with flying colors in fact dunbar later talks about how his answers in the very first interview that he did were the same answers uh, later in the truth serum and there was no hint whatsoever that he was lying so this particular suspect pops Onto the FBI's radar about three or four times, and pops off three or four times. It's one more phone call. Uh, it's two more phone calls that that uh, really bring the focus on him. And in the final one, uh, he in again to torture the mother. He claims that little Susie is with him and he he purportedly uh, puts the phone up to the little girl and she speaks and says mommy he's a very nice man or something to that effect at that moment the FBI couldn't afford to be uh, on the fence about this anymore because if this guy that they were suspecting in a broad sense uh, actually had another little girl, then they had to act fast. And that's when uh, they swoop in and and an arrest is made.
0: Right. And this was, there were other, like, they didn't know there was Siobhan McGinnis, too. Like, this was very strange things were happening prior to the arrest, right? There were a
1: lot of things, but none of them were ever really put together none of these crimes was ever really um, considered a possibly related to these crimes we're talking about. Uh, there, there's the disappearance of little Susie Yeager and the disappearance of Sandy Smolligan, which seem obviously related, but nobody was really looking at Siobhan and, and some other unsolved cases uh, right.
0: up was, to uh, Michael Rainey, right. Bernie Pullman, right?
1: Right, Bernie so, Pullman, uh, Michael Rainey, Siobhan McGinnis. Uh, there are uh, there, uh, a dozen unsolved murders in Montana at that time. He's arrested, he's uh, the uh, search happens, and uh, on in his possession, uh, I don't want to put anybody off their feed here, but uh, there's ghastly evidence found in his uh, his apartment. Uh, it's so ghastly. Uh, there's no question about his involvement. And his lawyer, who actually believed in him, who believed he was being harassed, uh, goes to him in a rage and says you're, you're basically you're going to hang, which is Montana's method at the time. Uh,
0: and it the, is incredible the, that he he fit the profile, but he definitely tried to, and kind of successfully outsmarted the authorities to to a certain degree, right? He, uh, to a certain I'll degree,
1: almost completely. When you think about yeah. the the passing all of the uh, lie detection, but uh, he. Uh, He had completely controlled them. I think at the moment when they slapped the cuffs on him, uh, he lost a certain amount of that control. But when he then comes back to his lawyer and says, well, can we get the death penalty taken off the table if I give them more murders? Uh, That ultimately, uh, that astounds nobody more than his own lawyer, uh, or Dunbar, or the county prosecutor, but they do work it out that they will take the death penalty off the table if he will confess to the two m- more murders that he said he could, and uh, really he does, and, and that whole interview is, is, is put down word for word in this book so that you can see the kind of uh, conversation that was going on and the, and the depths of his depravities. Uh, so uh, that, that confession, they concentrate on getting his um, his admission in these four cases. The two little boys we talked about earlier in 67 and 68, and then uh, Susie Yeager and Sandra Smulligan, he confesses to killing all of them. So uh, this is this interview is happening in the wee hours of early Sunday morning. He's arrested Friday afternoon. The dealing goes on Saturday, and then from about two to four a.m., Dunbar and the prosecutor are questioning him, getting these admissions. Uh, and it's clear from the transcript that that they were very focused on those four things, and that their intention was to come back, maybe even later that day, but overcoming days, and interview him more about other cases, about these cases in more detail, uh, and and it, it's well, it's pretty obvious that that was their plan. It it. Uh, without giving up too much. uh, They are surprised about what happens next.
0: Right. I mean, it's really an incredible story and very disturbing. And this guy looked pretty clean cut. Like, that was another thing. Like, he was able to fool them all up until the end. So it's really, I mean, uh, an elusive psycho killer is an an apt description of this guy. I mean, really something else. And your writing is superb. You're an excellent writer. So it was really a pleasure to read through the book. So congratulations on that. Is there anything? Like? I mean, we're at 40 minutes. I highly recommend people check out this book. There's an audiobook too. So you can uh, read through that if you're interested. Let's see. Yeah, the audio book's available. Hardcover. Right now, it just got published. New release already has 65 star ratings. So congratulations on that. Is there anything you'd like to add, Ron? Yeah, only that I
1: think that that we start to see here um, as the development of of profiling, we we begin we begin what I think is a weird fascination with serial killers. It starts really kind of with Ted Bundy several a few years later, but we also are learning up to that point. I think people looked at deviant characters like this and and thought of flying monkeys and boogeymen and even Charles Manson, that you could see them coming. But what we are beginning to understand with with this case and then going forward is that, no, they, they look like us. They live next door. They coach Little League. They go on vacation. Uh, we, I think began to get that sense. Uh, and you see that in the profile, The, the uh, other than some of the kind of deviant psychology they're talking about, a lot of the behaviors uh, are ordinary, the things we do. So um, it's not, it's no longer, I don't think it ever was really possible to see evil coming.
0: But this guy really was it i mean he was really uh, and you have it right there kind of in the in the prologue too you know shadows come so uh, pretty dark and your your books are bestsellers like darkest night alice and gerald you have very great reviews clearly people have read a lot of your other books i, I was only aware of this one but uh People can get all your books through your website. I sp- assume Ron Francell. Well, they can or read about copies. them. Yeah, come to the website
1: and read about them. But they're all available at any bookstore. Uh, if they're not on the shelf, they can certainly be ordered. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you name it. Your local independent bookstore is a great place to buy books.
0: Excellent. And uh, if they want to, people want to reach out to you. Your website is r o n f r a n s c e l l dot Right. Before
1: Correct. Correct, and there's Absolutely. an email address in there that you can you can send me a note.
0: Cool, and I will put that uh, website in the show notes. Again, the author's name is Ron Francell. Title of the book we talked about today: Go get this book, excellent book, or listen to the audiobook. Title again is Shadow Man: An Elusive Psycho Killer and the Birth of FBI Profiling, and um, just published March first, twenty twenty two. So, Ron, thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank you, William. I excellent. it was a privilege to be here.
0: Awesome. Well, I really appreciate it. So have a great weekend. Stay there, stay there, stay there.